Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Exit the Stage Door. I am your host, Aaron Teachman, and this is episode two. It's Patrick Flynn. You folks in the DC theater scene may know him as the author of Giant Box of Porn. I hope you do. It was a big hit at Capitol Fringe, uh, which is awesome, and we're going to talk about that a lot in the podcast to come. Um, there's a whole bunch of other ways you may know Mr. Flynn. He is an active uh, member of our creative community. He makes films with 48-hour film festivals. He makes short films. You can check them out at unknownpenguin.com and on his YouTube channel. Unknown Penguin is the username. Uh, this was such a fantastic conversation. I was thrilled to be able to sit down with Mr. Flynn for so long. We talked forever. So you're going to get something really special with episode two. It's a two-parter. Uh, you got, I got to give you time to process all the stuff that we talked about. It was, it was really great. Uh, this week, uh, you're going to get part one where we spend most of our time talking about giant box of porn. Um, we, we are going to end up talking about movies because that's a thing that we both love and he's a teacher of and practitioner of, and that gets really great, really fast. Uh, I'm so glad you joined us again. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, exit the stage door. Uh, we'll be glad you will leave some comments, leave some love, show some appreciation for at unknown penguin. That's Patrick Flynn on Twitter. He's a very consistent gentleman with his, uh, username, uh, and his great social media presence. Uh, check out the show notes. There's a bunch of links there. Uh, Patrick Flynn talks about his, uh, best of for the comedy sports LA podcast. You will find a link to that there. Please check that out. He's proud of it. You should listen to it. I'm so glad that you stuck with us. I'm so glad that I stuck around too. This is going to be great. It proves that we're on to something real, uh, and I should shut up, and we should just get to the wonderful Patrick Flynn. Here's part one. I have a little notepad here in case we get lost. That's good. Because I hate it on podcasts when people get lost. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, what were we talking about? And you're listening going, tell the story about Mandy Patinkin, and they never finished the story. About. Yeah, oh yeah. yeah. Uh, I actually normally have. Uh, yeah. Clipboard for that. Process. Oh, look at you! I'm, it's lost. I'm more prepared than you are. Yes. Well, that's not a surprise. You're probably <laughs> more experienced at this than I am at this point. That's possible because you used to run a podcast. I did I used to run a podcast. Yeah, two minutes ago when I told you. Yeah. Um, back in 2006. Oh wow. 2007. Wow, I the say. woolly days of it. Oh, too. absolutely. Way back in the day, I had a an an improv podcast, fully edited, um, that I edited with uh, a couple of guys or a couple of kid, people from. Um, Comedy sports in LA, Chris Matu and Seth Brown and uh, Amanda, um, whose last name I'm blanking on. Please edit that out. <laughs> oh, um, no, there's no editing here. I'm so, so sorry. Man, I forgot her last name. That's so sad. I love her so much. Um, and uh, we just had a great time. We did a bunch yeah. of episodes, but it was just, it was such arduous work that I quit. Oh, <laughs> I yeah. just disbanded the thing. Yeah. But I learned a very valuable lesson because we used to improv around suggestions. We would just toss oh, okay. out suggestions to each other and like go. And that worked one time out of like 20. <laughs> and we have a best of episode that I put together, which nice. I'm really proud okay, of. Yeah. It's still there. You can, if you search Unknown Penguin Podcast okay. on iTunes, I still have it up. You can still download it. I am a big fan of the best of. I'm a big fan awesome. of like, but the rest of the episodes are very, <laughs> very hit and miss. Um, and it took like a year or two because there's also, do you ever listen to Super Ego? Podcast? Oh, I don't know. Okay. So Super Ego, they're also not out of comedy sports LA, but they're, 
from affiliated with those guys. So okay, I knew yeah. them and I, I shot a video for them uh, way, like in 2009. But they, I discovered like what they do the same sort of thing. They do improvised edited podcasts, but they base it around characters where one person's oh. playing a very defined character okay. and they put the character in a situation and we would just toss out random suggestions <laughs> and go and that doesn't, oh, that's harder. it rarely yeah. works. Yeah. It should say to people trying that sort of thing, it rarely, rarely works. Right. So... Improv turns out you have to do a lot of preparation. You have to do a ton of, of preparation, yeah. as I learned when I made uh, my fully improvised feature film. That you have to do tons and tons of oh yeah, <laughs> tons and tons of preparation. I'm looking up her name. I have to. Okay, yeah, so, you totally have to do it. That's so totally fine. I'm so no, no, that's uh, I have that I love same you, Amanda. disease. You're so or, great. She was so. <laughs> I feel really bad because like we hung out. We did a lot of videos together. Um, oh, okay. And a lot of podcast stuff. And she was always totally gung ho for anything we did would do. And uh, I, um, oh man, now I'm like dwelling on it and it's just getting, it's getting worse and worse and worse. Amanda McCann. There it is. There we Amanda. go. Okay. Oh, I'm okay. so sorry, man. <laughs> I did before we sat down, look up a ton of names. Oh yeah. People to be like, and the lighting designer on that show was right. Okay. Right, so yeah. I won't forget. <laughs> yeah. But, you want to get the shout outs. And right. I didn't this look is... up Amanda beforehand because like, I'll remember Amanda's name. She was great. She did a video <laughs> with me. It's on my YouTube page, I think called. It's, it was supposed to be a reality show commercial for a woman who had 26 kids by 20... No, 24 kids by 26 men. Oh. <laughs> that was, that was That's awesome. That was funny. Give me a show. That's what it's called. Give me a show. She didn't have a show. She wanted a show. All right. Yeah. There's nothing funnier than describing a premise of something to somebody. <laughs> I could describe a cartoon to you. I guess that would be the more... Do you have a starting thing? Do you kick off with anything? Or no, we we're, right in? we're rolling into it. I think right it in? might be time to introduce you. I though. was going to... Yeah. Oh, that... <laughs> Very good point, Aaron. <laughs> Thank you. That is my Way name. I am Aaron Teachman. This is Exit the Stage Door, I think. We'll call it that for now. I like that title. You should He's, keep it. Okay, great. That's a, that's a strong vote. I like good. it. Yeah. And you are? I am. You have to introduce me. You're the host. Patrick Flynn. I am Patrick Flynn. Who I know as the author of Giant Box of Porn. I would say most DC theater people know me. Okay. That, which is fine, because that's the show I've had. Yes. <laughs> uh, a big hit at Capfringe. Yeah. We were really happy about that. Which is uh, very cool. Like, a dead tree edition of the Washington Post carried a review of yes, the show. which, which was... was startling. That was a really... It was... It was I, I was stunned by that. Yeah. That was just so beyond any hope we had for attention. Right. Um... And it was a great review. We were just thrilled. It was yeah. us and two others, and I, I don't remember who they were because they're yeah. not important. Uh, I'm not going to look them up. No, yeah. Um, <laughs> we were t- we were thrilled. We were thrilled that it came out online. I don't know. Was it you who posted the photograph on it? Somebody put a photo I did, on Instagram. Yes. Yeah, that yeah. we were in. The, and I was just like, oh my god, it was great. Amazing. I was so excited for you guys. It was great. Did you I, see the show? I was not able to see the show. I was traveling during <sighs> Cap Fringe the second year in a row that I've managed to not be in DC during the Fringe Festival, which is a shame. Yeah. Um. I, wish I, I, I didn't see anything else at the Fringe Festival. I, confess, <laughs> I think point. that's pretty common. <laughs> it was so busy with our show. It oh, just, yeah. when I wasn't oh, there, yeah. I was like, I'm just going to go home. Yeah. It's <laughs> better this way. Doing theater is exhausting. It is very exhausting. It's interesting. But uh, we were right next to the tent, which was awesome. Oh, cool. So I was at the tent a lot and I met a lot of cool Oh, that's awesome. Cool yeah. I mean, that that's way. half of the other half of Cap Fringe is being able to yeah. mingle with all of those like super motivated and uh, mostly creative people. <laughs> yes, mostly creative. All insane, which is what I Oh, yes, all absolutely. Insane. I did get a chance to see the show very early on when you guys did sort of a stage oh, you came dish to the reading at the pitch. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yes, November 2013, for those yes. of you writing my autobiography. <laughs> yeah, November 1st. It was my father-in-law's birthday. It's the only reason I remember oh, that. Okay. I got I in a little bit that. of trouble for being <laughs> like, I have to go to this reading. Can't be at the birthday party. 
Um, yeah, that was. Oh, you saw the reading. Okay, yeah, great. I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, it was a very different show than we than we staged. I figured. The yeah, yeah, I figured. It, it underwent a tremendous. I've been working on the script for what is this? Twenty fourteen. It debuted yeah. like three years. Oh yeah. Um, because it's one of the few. I don't usually develop a show this way, but it was all premise. It was oh, okay. a couple discovers a giant box of pornography in their apartment. <laughs> That's all I had. <laughs> okay. And that was enough. Like right. that got us rolling. And then I took, I mean, the very, I took a lot of drafts early on mm-hmm. just figuring out what the format of the show would be and how realistic it would be and like how much of a like Pandora's box, how much are we going to push that metaphor? Right. Is it literally from the gods? Like, <laughs> go? And I just explored every single avenue. And as it turned out, the more realistic the better the show turned out to be. Mm-hmm. The more they could really get into it, the less we sort of worried about as the box, the more the box just became a, a jumping off point for all the problems yeah. of the characters. Um, and then we did, you know, uh, I gave it to Jacqueline Lawton. Yes. Mm-hmm. Who I still have never met in person. I know, neither have I. Have you not? Okay, good. I'm not the only one. <laughs> I met, I I met, I did a, um, Active Cultures did a stage reading of a play of mine called princess mimi or how i learned to stop worrying and love the frog oh that's awesome that's a fun title um I'm, i have good luck with play titles <laughs> I, I don't know why um and she was involved in selecting that play and she mm. sent me several emails mm-hmm. and then i started emailing with her and following her on twitter obviously because yeah. i think everybody in dc follows oh yeah she's essential for sure yeah. yeah and um i just sent it to her because i had no idea what to do with it mm-hmm. i knew i wanted somebody to do something with it but i had no idea what to do and I gave it to her, and that day, I think, she read it and gave it, ran into Danielle Molman, our mutual friend. <laughs> yes. Who, that, like, week, they'd had a show drop out. Of oh. A week that was supposed to be at the pinch, and they needed a script, like, right away. <laughs> and she said that to Jackie, who then said, well, I got this, and it's good, and you should read it. And she read it, and, like, that, the next couple days contacted me and was like we want to do a reading and it was that fast holy cow and then we worked on it pretty much from like that september 2011 2000 what am i saying 11 2013 pardon me uh up through the debut at at the French, mm-hmm. we were working on it yeah. pretty consistently Constantly, between yeah. those two yeah which was great yeah i saw some of the the fun twitter bits there while you were working out your uh <laughs> what the titles should be your the dramaturgical yes. exercise yes, about. absolutely of what the titles of the, of yeah. the movie should be yeah, yeah. That, that those things are very important it is an interesting detail very, to think very about important you don't want them to be i didn't want any of them to be real except sure. for debbie does dallas mm-hmm. i felt if we didn't mention debbie does dallas in the course of the play you'd notice right I felt right that would be distracting you do have to because when you yeah. say name a porn i think to everybody like it would be on there absolutely one of the first ones if not the yeah. first one out of their mouth um, have you ever seen Debbie Does Dallas? I have never actually seen Debbie it's Does Dallas. It's hilarious. I bet. To you right now. <laughs> My roommate in college had it on VHS. We watched it. Oh, a lot because it's just weird and it bizarre is, 70s that, oh the 70s porn oh my oh, gosh it's, oh, it's so weird it's an art form it's great yeah <laughs> it's okay <laughs> i wasn't gonna go that far i mean you, you know so I, like i i i love experimental aesthetics like and they're just clearly throwing crap at a wall and trying to figure out well and works. that's the thing that drew me to it because i'm not i'm very i was very careful in the show and i was very careful with danielle and maureen montarubio our director and megan westman the dramaturg to make sure that the show never took a side on whether or not mm-hmm. porn was good yes. or bad. That all points of view were represented and like the case for, the case against, mm-hmm. 
And that wasn't the point. The porn wasn't the point. And so we were very careful because I'm not a guy. I'm not a big. I find pornography a little bit disturbing, to mm. be entirely honest. Mm-hmm. I hate strip clubs. Oh, sure. Um, just they. it all skeezes me out. But one thing you can't deny is that and what makes me laugh so much is that it is 110% honest. Yeah. <laughs> it is. There's no pretense about it at all. It is, this is what I'm here for. You are going to watch people, can we curse on this podcast? Yeah, absolutely. You watch people fucking, and that is to get you off. That is the yes, whole, yeah. nobody's pretending here. We're not yeah. making art. We're making pornography. They call each other porn stars. Like, that's it. That's the whole deal. And because of that, like, honesty, it's a little bit refreshing. Yeah. That we're just like, <laughs> we're just here to do this. And... You know, whoever came up with the porn parody, I think, was a genius of just like, it doesn't matter what we do. Like, all these videos are of people fucking. But if we're doing a parody of this movie or TV show you've seen, you'll want to watch that. Right, right. And people who don't buy porn will watch that. Like, it stretches the market, really, in an interesting way to watch. And they'll just, they'll fast forward through the porn and watch the parody and get the jokes. Yeah. Um, Did you ever watch that? I never never saw it, but I heard it was James Gunn and, like, Nathan Fillion is in it. So the guys are all actors and the women are all porn stars no what is it um it's called i think it's called pg porn and it's that no. it's all set up they, every everything that leads to the sex and no sex well that's what they did debbie does dallas on stage <laughs> in i think it was in la when i was living in la it was a, i don't remember if it was a musical or a play but it was just the script of when debbie, yeah. does, debbie does dallas and then the sex scenes were treated like sex scenes would be in a where like the lights faded out and you just like, it was all for the lead up <laughs> and then like it would just fade away and you were just left with, because there is a story to Debbie. It's yes. a very hard, concrete story about this girl named Debbie who's trying to go to a cheerleading competition in Dallas. Nobody's named Dallas. Oh, in the it's movie. so Texas. And it's very, yeah. And it's just, you know, and everybody's got cocaine eyes and it's really disturbing. <laughs> There's a lot of cocaine and hair in that movie. But anyway. <laughs> Um, so if you took all the sex movie, first of all, besides, I don't know how long the show was. It would be like an hour if you yeah. took all the, the movie's only like eighty minutes long, so it'd be less than an hour probably right. of like solid content. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it's a funny little exercise. But I love the honesty of it, and I love juxtaposing that with a relationship that was in trouble, and these two yeah. people were not being honest with each other, right? And how this pure honesty can really 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 screw you up as a person if we're like oh yeah that's yeah. all anybody's ever like we want to be honest with each other well let's what does that like, yeah what does actually that? mean if yeah. you're completely honest with each other absolutely yeah i and i at the at the reading i loved what i really loved was that tension about how far where did this box come from mm-hmm. how far will you go like so that you really earn the discovery later on yeah about what level of realism you are in and yeah. you're in a you're in a place where like it grows on you. It starts off a bit absurdist, and you don't. How far? What's going on? And then you uh, is this is this name Sherlock or yes, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the neighbor's name I is mean, Sherlock. He gets to do the weird stuff sometimes. Yeah. He takes on. He takes. He goes to the radical approach of it, right? And that lets the main characters develop mm-hmm. in a more organic and contrast with their oh, own absolutely, experience. Yeah. I mean, the box affects everybody in yeah. the play. And so I think it was the Washington Post pointed out that it is a it has like a framework of a CBS sitcom and it does very, very much on purpose where it's Mm. a couple in an apartment and her sister and their neighbor Mm -hmm. and he comes over and these people just come over and interact and then they leave. That is very intentional that it is set up in a very traditional way because that makes the absurdity of the box funnier to me. Absolutely. Yeah. Totally 
like we've seen this a billion times, yeah. this format. And the way Maureen staged it when we did it at Warehouse for Fringe, and it was in a three-quarter thrust, and it mm. was very involved, it had, to me, a very sitcom feel to it. Because you just can't avoid that in the Fringe. You're, you're, you're yeah. bare bones as a couch Absolutely, on the yeah. stage with a thing. Yeah. And it had that very organic feel to it that it was just like people walking around a room and we had three angles so you had three cameras and you're just mm-hmm. you're just doing the thing and it really it benefits from that in my opinion and it's really you, you can't it, the, the more typical the framework I find the more weird stuff you can hang on it oh yeah and people will let you do it you can kind of yeah. get away with a lot if you just be like oh this is just a couple and this is her sister and their neighbor and he's weird and she's weird in a different way and yeah dun 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 well I mean and that's the thing about I'm I'm a film buff actually in a in a previous life I'm not just a cinephile. Well, we are but, in the school of communication at American University where is, I teach, so we can talk about that. I, said, I would love that. Was, this was a long segue into that Good. fact. So what we're really <laughs> doing here on a theater podcast <laughs> yes. is to talk about movies. Absolutely, sure. Uh, one movie in particular is, is 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 something that I find interesting. Um, but in that life, I I discovered Steven Soderbergh, and mm-hmm. like Soderbergh does that with his stylistic stuff. The stuff that he does, for example, in Ocean's Eleven mm-hmm. is so out there. Yeah, he plays on your assumptions very, very well. And he gets away with it because, oh, it's Brad Pitt. Right. And, and it's George Clooney. And, and it's, it's George Clooney. Yeah. And we get, and Julia Roberts, and we understand, because you understand so much of the situation already, Right. he gets a chance to play and push the state of the art. And that's mm-hmm. awesome. So, absolutely. Yeah. And P- Pinter does that too. But. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, a lot of people. I mean, I think a, a lot of great artists yeah. do that myself included yes right because that was the implication of that sentence Uh, yes it is um that you you take you you play with people's assumptions all day long you can also go in the other direction which is what i think david mamet does is Mm. he takes your assumptions and kind of beats them into the floor (laughs) and sometimes that's fascinating and sometimes it's really it turns out to be boring i think would be the other the 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 double-sided coin now if you take somebody's assumptions and screw with them too much the other side of that coin is it's really confusing right because if you turn too hard people go wait a minute i was expecting this to happen right. and it like if you can go from a to b you can't go from a to z right Other, people yeah. will get lost yeah. and get angry whereas like i think mamet sometimes goes uppercase a to lowercase a and you're like yeah oh yeah oh he was okay i sometimes like his movies more just because and his movies are way more like that than yeah his plays are it, it, he's he's he is such a i don't know have you read any of his books I've read the one book. I've read um, all of his books oh, <laughs> because I find I don't agree with most of his sure, theories, yeah. about, especially not about acting, but also oh, yeah. about film. But he argues his points so well. I think I think everybody should read them because they're not long. Oh, yeah. for, like, no, on, not, on no. directing film and uh, was it Truth and Heresy for the actor theater. They're very short books. You should read, go to the library, oh, check yeah. them out. You'll have them done in a week. Right. He, he's wrong a lot of the time, I think. Oh, but all he the time. argues his point so well, it forces you to argue back. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it reinforces, he challenges your base assumptions. Very intelligent. He's a very smart man. <laughs> and then you go, oh, I don't agree with you. And here's why. And I came up with a lot of good reasons for my own choices against mm, his yeah. other choices. Why I think method acting like isn't total crap, as he does. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I remember specifically in on directing film, he does whole sections, which are like, I don't know if he transcribed them from memory or if they're actually recorded when he was a teacher, I think at Columbia for a semester Mm. teaching film. It should be noted that he published on directing film after he directed one film. He had directed House of Lies or House of Cards, House of Cards, House of Games, House of Games, Games, which is a tremendous movie. But he'd only made one movie in his life. He'd written screenplays for like three. He had directed one and then he published a book called On Directing Film. (laughs) So the man has an attitude, shall we say? Uh, 
And then he taught a course at Columbia on, on I don't know if it was on filmmaking or just on screenwriting, because he had written a lot of screenplays yes, and right. been nominated for an Oscar for that, so he was certainly qualified. Um, but <laughs> he, he taught he's these transcriptions of these discussions between the class. And one of his things is that, like, you never write a stage direction like um, so-and-so walked down the hall pensively, because it's impossible to walk pensively. And that's true. But if I told you to walk down the hall, and I filmed it, and then I said walk down the hall pensively, it would change the yeah, way you right. walked. It may not be totally trans. Like you may not be able to show it to somebody and go, "How is he walking down the hall?" And maybe he wouldn't. The, the viewer would not say pensively, but you clearly would have something on your mind. You'd be doing right. something. Yeah. You would have been directed. Right. And exactly. <laughs> yeah. It, it affects the. And it affects yeah. it. And his dismiss his dis- total dismissal of that. Of like the fact that you need yeah. to convey anything that writing is literally everything, <laughs> then you end up with like Rebecca Pigeon standing there like stone faced, and it's just so bizarre. It doesn't, but that's why I think Heist is a great movie. Of his. Heist, yeah, because you have Gene Hackman who's like the king of method acting, mm. and Rebecca Pigeon squaring off, and the result is fascinating. <laughs> the result is absolutely fascinating, and a very good movie, very well written movie as well. Yeah, Heist is really helps. good. Yeah. yeah, that's a solid movie. Uh, that reminds me of one of the things that I was. I was in a class and we were studying like charisma and mm-hmm. um, charisma as specifically on film. And it was taught by the German department. So you can imagine mm-hmm. what we were yes, talking about. Absolutely. Um, Triumph of the Will, um, which oh, I yeah. think Lenny is Riefenstahl all day long. so dull. Oh, man. Imagine it, yeah. if the Republican Party convention well, like, was a documentary and you're getting close to the levels of interest. The Well, and the, that is one of those movies that's more important than good. To yes, me. I deal exactly. with that with that's my a students great a point. lot is that there are movies that are important and there are movies that are good and a lot of the times hopefully the Venn diagram co- uh, crosses. I mean, you'd but, like it to, yeah. But like Citizen Kane is an important movie and it's really good. Right, exactly, opinion. yeah. But yeah, Triumph of the Will I mean, is it silent? I can't even remember. Does it have score beneath it? It has a lot of score. And then yeah. Hitler's speeches. For those of you who don't know, Triumph yeah. of the Will is a documentary about the Nazi convention in like 1930, 1934. 1934, yeah. pre-Poland. Um, oh, yeah. And it's just, uh, it's just a documentary of this rally. But it is a really interesting film to study for the purposes of mise-en-scene. And well, yeah, because Google it's it. not a neutral documentary. Right, it exactly is, it's, right. It is very pro-Nazi and like it's like you have... So many people talk about how they use the mise-en-scene and it gave them ideas and talking about the way the editing brings things together because you have the silver airplane descending from the skies and the adulating fans. And so what came up in the class was there's no way you can fake what the fans were doing, what those people in the streets were doing with respect to Hitler. This was an honest document about how the Germans felt about Hitler because you can't fake that kind of thing. I'm like, uh, no, you can fake that thing. All day all long. All day long. Exactly right. There's nothing authentic about that. In fact, she's using yeah. editing. He doesn't even actually have to be in there because he's not right. in any of Which those is a shots. Very he don't even well, know. He wasn't for a large section yeah. of it. Yeah. And she's filming a lot of people like setting up. Like that's kind yeah. of her thing. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, it's really interesting. So that, but yeah, this, boring movie. Very boring. Super movie. boring movie. Yeah. But that same person was like, oh, but this their attitude about it was uh, you can't fake it and you just need the words. Some we, we, somehow she ended up talking about Shakespeare. It's like Shakespeare's like you you know you just say the words and it and Shakespeare's so good that it's totally fine. 
That's not true at all. And, no, and like that's my point about man. But it's like man, that you can't be. That's just not true. Like bad people do your shows all the all time. All the time. Oh my gosh. But also, I think we get hung up with Mammoth on subject matter a lot. I mean, it, oh, like, yeah. it descends into the the uh, the masochism argument. Oh, okay. And yeah, I'm yeah. not. And it's, they're not wrong. All those arguments are not wrong. <laughs> but I don't like somebody. I saw refer to Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross as Man Mary, Men Ross, or something <laughs> like that. It's, it's all dudes talking about stuff. Uh, but it is a really good play. I mean, yeah. It shouldn't be like it should not be disregarded. The Glenn Gary Glenn Ross is a brilliant piece of theater. It yes. really is. It's, it's and good. there's also the problem Mammoth has of like you don't like any of his characters, right? But you're not supposed to, right? Right. In my opinion, he writes about despicable people doing <laughs> despicable things because that's interesting. Yes. And sometimes it betrays a certain feeling like you get from him. Like if you keep writing about this, you probably share some of these thoughts and I don't think you're wrong, but don't <laughs> signal out like this. Don't say the play is bad because it's not right. Bad. Exactly. Yeah. One of the greatest things I ever did in my teaching life was the first class. I was a TA here at AU when I was a, a master's student. Um, and the first class I ever taught was, I was a second year, second semester master's student and the, the then head of the department of performing arts here, uh, Gail Humphreys Martirosian, who some of you might know, um, called me and said, there's a class called like American Studies in Cinema and Theater or something. It's a general mm. gen ed course. Oh, okay, it's like yeah. 70 kids in the class. I mean, it's a huge class, mm-hmm. 200 level uh, theater class. And their professor after week one dropped out, like quit. Oh, wow. I don't know what happened. I don't know who it was. Um, and she was suddenly left without a teacher. And she found a replacement, uh, a woman named uh, Stacy Stewart, who, who's right now at Notre Dame. Actually, I just saw her when I swung through the Midwest. Wonderful, wonderful person. She used to work at Arena. Hmm. And she has a PhD, and so she was going to teach the class, but she didn't know anything about film. She could only teach the theater half. So she called me because uh-huh. she knew me because I'd taken classes over there, and my brother w- was very involved at, um, at the AU Players, which is AU Student Theater Group. Mm-hmm. So she called me and she said, will you teach the film half of this class? And I was like, I've never taught anything before in my life. She's like, that's fine. We really just need somebody to do this. <laughs> and so I got in there and she, Stacy and I went over the syllabus. And on the syllabus was Glengarry Glenn Ross. And she wanted to take it off because she hated it. Oh. And I said, and she wanted to replace it with something else. And she had a very valid suggestion sure, for a yeah. replacement. And I said, you can't take off Glengarry Glenn Ross because they also had studied Death of a Salesman right before it. And I said, you mm. can't. Like those two plays go together really, really well. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, I don't want to teach it. And I said, well, I'll teach it. And she went, okay. You know, it was one of those, like, somebody just totally had the faith in you to be like, yeah, sure. You say you can do that? Fine. And so I got up and lectured on Glengarry Glenn Ross. And by the end of it, I had convinced her that it was a good play. She didn't like it still. But she said, I will concede it's a good play. (laughs) That I had proved it was at least technically an accomplished piece of theater. Um, Because I'd gotten into the, there's a lot of stuff you can read about how it's about, like, the Jews versus the Gentiles and mm. biblical history and all the names of the characters represent different mm. things like that. There's a lot going on in that show um, beneath the surface of all the, the cursing. Right. Um, and uh, and I got to say cunt in front of a group of students, which they didn't really <laughs> like, but it's in the play. I had to read from yeah. the text. I didn't have, you know, I didn't have anything else to go from. Um, but yeah, so it, it's important to keep those things in context. But yeah. I also think getting back to what you said about, about Triumph of the Will being boring, <laughs> it's also important. I, I, I always say to my students, I teach a class here called Visual Literacy, mm. which is sort of an introduction to communication theory class. And you learn, we learn about paintings, digital media, photography, and film, and, and basically how to read a piece of, of media mm-hmm. and then create it. Oh, yeah. Um, 
And one of the things I say to the students on the first day is that you know all the stuff that I'm telling you. You just don't know what the words are. You don't have the... Because we're talking about how to articulate emotional response. Like you're getting the emotional response. I'm telling you why you're feeling that way. Mm -hmm. But I also say that people always say every... I think since my generation, but probably earlier... Um, I'm born in 1980, for those of you who want context for that. Um, <laughs> saying that this generation has no attention span. They don't have the ability to appreciate. And I don't think that's true. What I think it actually is is that we're able to absorb information and media faster mm, because mm-hmm. we grow up with it. Right. And we grow up with the cues and we understand cuts and how they tell a story a lot because it's in the cartoons. It's in, yeah. it's in We're being shown it a lot earlier. So something like Triumph for the Will you get the point very quickly. Whereas an audience in 1934 would have taken, also, they went to, there was no television. Right. Like, this was it. They went to the movie, they listened to the radio or they went to the movie theaters and they watched and they spent all day there. Yeah. So movies were longer and slower and all those things. So it's important to, to take the historical context. Absolutely. You know, this was a, how long is it too? It's like, is it three hours long? Oh, no, it's not that long. It just feels that long. It does feel that long. I feel, I feel like it's only, it's, it's not much longer than two. Is it not? God, I don't know. It just, yeah. Your perception up, of, the, yeah. That's, it's, uh, yeah, it, it, but it does, it's really slow. It's, it's super, really super slow. slow. And yeah. what, but I mean, that's a great point too, because even the, the theorists of media, actually, this is, I wanted to talk brief, before I get down to Volta Benjamin. Okay. Why Whoa, I'm going to write that down. Volta Benjamin? Why don't we talk sure. just briefly, Giant Box of Porn, yes. really well received at yes. Cat Fringe, does it have another life? Is, I hope so. Not yet. Not um, yet. Okay. I've, I've talked to a lot of people. Uh, there was a reviewer from the City Paper came, whose name I also am forgetting, and I'm not going to look it up. Um, <laughs> he went to Catholic U like I did. He and I oh, okay. actually interacted at CUA. He reminded me. Um, which was pretty great to meet him. He really liked the show, and he was a big advocate for it existing. And then I also met a woman at the tent. Actually, one of these like it's it's one of those stories that people, like I went. We had a show at nine o'clock on a Tuesday or something, mm-hmm. and I had nothing to do all day, so I just went to the tent at like five, and I was going to do work, but I was just going to hang out and see who came by. And I'm sitting at one of the tables of the tent, and it's like me and another guy and this woman who is is older than I am, and. She just turns to me and says, what do you think I should see? I've got like, I'm supposed to go see a show and I'm supposed to go see another show. And I said, well, I haven't seen anything except my show, which is called Giant Box of Porn. And she went, oh, I saw that. I really liked it. And we ended up talking and she ended up canceling her plans to go see the other show and coming to mine again oh. that night and bringing a friend of hers to come and see it. And her name is Holly Werner and, uh, or Wenner. I can't remember one of those two pronunciations. She works... Um, I'm forgetting everything today. <laughs> she works with in town, but she was a big, I mean, she became like my cheerleading section. All and right. She brought, would tell people to come see it. She did see it again. She stood, you know, did standing room the second time. Wow. Um, I had a couple people come to see it twice, which was really, That's really great. awesome. Yeah. Um, and Dave, do you know David, the, the perennial fan of DC theater? He's at signature a lot. He came to see the oh, show. No, which I was don't. Great on closing night. Um, and then I just saw him. I went to see Sunday in the Park at Signature and saw oh, him again. Yeah. And he was great to talk to. So the show has fans okay, that's who good. were out there. But I don't know what to do oh, next yeah. is the kind of the thing. Um, Field Trip is kind of restructuring itself a little yes. bit. And they have a brown bag lunch coming in a couple of weeks, which I'm hoping to get to. October um, 8th. October 8th. There we go. And, you know, and, and Nick Vargas and, and, and everything. It, it, I, I would love to do it. But they agree. We have to do it different. We have to do it bigger. We have to well, do of course, something yeah, else. Absolutely. We have to take it up a notch. And I, I don't know who to call about that. It's one of those weird things where yeah. I'm just talking to all kinds of people. Yeah. And people are saying, you should talk to this person. I'll introduce you. And then like that takes three weeks, you right. know, like just, just, <laughs> because it's not the number one thing on their priority yeah. list to like yeah. suddenly get my life in control. Right. They're not my agent. They don't have, that's not their job. But um, 
everybody seems to agree that it needs to get done again. Just yeah. nobody has stood up and said, I'll do it. You know, so yeah. that's kind of where okay. I'm at. And I would really like to do it again with Maureen mm-hmm. directing. Maureen mm-hmm. was, and Megan as dramaturg. The three of us really, we just got together the other night for a postmortem kind of on what we liked awesome. and what we didn't like. And it was a great night. The three of us have a really great sync mm-hmm. and we understand it very well and I was in Maureen directed the reading as well and when Danielle oh, yeah. and I and Nick were kind of in negotiations about whether Field Trip was going to do it for the Fringe one of the things I said was that it has to be Maureen mm-hmm. directing because in addition to the fact that it's important to me the play's main character is a woman and of course when you have women like Danielle and Maureen produce, you know, producing and directing like that's going to you're going to get a good point of view and, yeah. and with Anna Jackson playing the, uh, Kate we got a really great, you know, my female perspective was well represented, but I also wanted the director to be married, which Maureen is. Uh-huh. It was very important to me that a married person direct this married couple because none of the yeah. cast was married. I gotcha. And there's a dynamic you have with your spouse that you don't have with your girlfriend. I don't care, or boyfriend. I don't care if you live with them or not. Right. It's a different thing. There's a longer view to life that you just kind of adapt because like, well, we've agreed to do this forever. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean exactly? And I liked that Maureen inherently, and she would direct the actors that way. Be like, when you're married, this happens. Mm-hmm. When you're married, mm-hmm. that happens. So, you know, play with that. So that was crucial to me. So I would like Maureen and I to keep, and Megan to keep working on it going yeah. forward. That would be would be really great to really take this script where it should go. Because it did change a ton, even from the draft I gave Danielle. I told Danielle after we closed, I was like, I'm going to go back and read that draft that you got from Jackie. And she was like, don't. Uh. Uh, <laughs> Which I don't think she was commenting so much on on the quality of it, just on the like playwright to playwright, don't do it. it right, it's right. Not, and I haven't yet. I, yeah. I someday will. Will uh, Hayes, who played Sherlock, wanted to have a reading with the four actors and to read the first draft, and I said absolutely not. No, um, no. I'm gonna read it. You aren't gonna right, read it. Right, right. Um, but it changed a lot. I was Morgan Davies, who played uh, Vanessa in the French production, and also in the reading. Mm-hmm. Um, commented to me that she's never worked with a playwright who was more willing to change the script. And I was very happy to hear that. Yeah. Um, or maybe not, because I think people should be willing to just, just let it live. We're in the rehearsal room, and it yeah. should absolutely live. And that line doesn't work. Well, what should it say? And I was rewriting huge chunks and handing it to them. And we had a cutoff date, obviously. Right, right. But it was... It was a living organism. And yeah. if a scene wasn't working, it's my job to go back and rewrite it. And I feel that a lot of writers kind of treat their talent like a well. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like a finite well. Like right. you, you can only go back to the well a certain number of times right. before you're done. And that's certainly true of exhaustion. I think you can get exhausted. Mm. But if you have good collaborators and you're willing to take their advice and like, it doesn't matter whose idea it is. I said this right. to like Maureen yeah. and Megan were so surprised I was willing to take all these ideas. And I was like, it says by Patrick Flynn on the title. Why shouldn't I take the best idea? Everyone's yeah. going to think it was mine anyway. <laughs> And I'll give credit where credit's due. If somebody says, like, that was a great moment, I'd be like, well, that was actually Maureen's idea. And a lot of them were. Right. <laughs> but um, a lot of them are mine, too. And a lot of them are everybody's. It's a very collaborative room. Absolutely. And that's what it yeah. should be. It's a living, yeah. breathing thing. It should be a full collaboration. So take the suggestions. I learned that from uh, very uh, keenly from Stafford Arima. Do you know Stafford? Is? I don't know. Stafford is a director in New York. He just did, uh, most famously, recently, the Carrie revival off-Broadway. Oh, He directed okay. that. I did a show... At Catholic U, after I graduated in 2003, he and Chris Catelli, do you know Christopher Mm -mm. Catelli? Chris won the Tony for choreographing Newsies. Oh, Chris is an amazing choreographer. And then David Loud was the music director. He was also a Broadway music director. And he was in the original cast of Merrily We Roll Along on Broadway. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) 
David was the first person I worked with who had been drawn by Al Hirschfeld. I told him that. He thought that was, <laughs> he, thought that was he, he took it the way you would, which is, oh. You know, and then he went back to doing right, what he was doing. Right. <laughs> um, but I was the assistant director on that. Oh, okay. I was brought in by Jane Pesci Townsend um, to do that. And uh, Jane, who was a huge influence and, and mentor to me and meant the world to me. Um, and had a profound impact on me. But Stafford runs a rehearsal room and like a collaboration mm-hmm. among everybody in a way that I had never, ever witnessed where it was, didn't matter. And not only would he take any idea, but he would credit the idea to the person who get it like I we'd be sitting in the theater I'll never forget this Chris me and Stafford and we're sitting in a line it's Chris and Stafford in front of me and I'm behind and I remember something that happened and I was like you know she should cr-. like I gave a Stafford a suggestion like, mm-hmm. she should do that and he turned to everybody goes oh yes Patrick had a wonderful idea and Stafford is a great way of talking and he would be like this is a great idea tell them and then eventually it became tell them tell them they should do that and Chris oh, was the same yeah. way because Chris wanted to direct Chris directed um the unauthorized silence of the lambs musical silence oh, I he heard did the that. original fringe production of that in New York oh okay he directed and choreographed that. And so he wanted to direct. It was very clear. He wanted yeah. to be a director. And Stafford was always like, yes, say that. And I, it took me a long time to realize that. But he was doing that because it was the best thing for the room. Mm-hmm. The room was alive with talent. Nobody was worried about whose idea was whose or whether they could talk or not. There's only There were six people in the cast. And there was four of us on the, on the creative team. And Andrew Griffin was the stage manager who's a lighting designer now in town and a yeah. very good one. Um, it was a hell of a room now that I say yeah. all these names. Yeah. I love. Lauren Williams was in the cast. It was just, I mean, it was an amazing group. Um, and it was just such a, a vibrant place. We all wanted to come to work every day. We wanted this show to be really, really good and to be successful. And that is something I've carried with me on everything I've done, on a film, mm. on anything. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter whose idea is. The best idea is the one that should win. It doesn't matter that it's my idea or it's your idea or whoever. Right. Now, there's a hierarchy. When I say no, if I'm the director, it, that's the end of the conversation. Right. <laughs> We're done now. But when you're that free and you're saying yes more than you're saying no, when you say no, everybody kind of goes, oh, okay. Well, next time. It'll be fine. It's his show. Whatever. It's his movie. Fine. It doesn't make a big deal. So that's super important to me. Mm, and yeah, since we absolutely. had that dynamic, I'm kind of afraid. Like, I'm afraid to break in a new oh, director yeah. who would be like, no, it's my show. And go away. And you're like, oh, damn it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Absolutely. And there's a tremendous trust that we built over the last year. Yeah, that you know, Absolutely. So we'll do something together again at some point, well, I'm sure. Yeah. I just hope it's with this show as well to keep it all, keep it moving forward. Mm-hmm. Was there a second question? I can't no, remember. no, I'm talking that, for a really long time. No, I, I say. It. Oh, you wanted to get back to I Volta. Mean, we, I, I wanted to make sure that we covered your work oh, yes, in, yeah, enough yeah. Detail in enough so detail so that people, people be like, could yeah. know about it in its future. It's a groovy what, show. We're yeah, really excited about. It. Yeah. I am really happy with it, and the reviews it's, were great. Yeah, we saw that every night, standing room only. Not That's that anyone's awesome. counting, but I was. <laughs> um, and uh, do you? So do you? I, I don't know exactly what you do. That was the funny bit in all this. So oh what yeah. Do, what do you do? I'm gonna oh, interview you for a second. Okay. Um, I know yeah. you're friends with Danielle. I am friends with Danielle. Which is how I started following you on Twitter. Yes, that's so. The, my whole experience with the DC theater scene to this point, before I became a podcaster, right. was through Twitter. Podcaster. Okay. Um, because the DC theater scene is so close knit, yes. and there is a group, um, a very supportive group that I find a lot of us engage regularly in like banter but mm-hmm. also in like trying to solve the problems of the theater world yeah absolutely <laughs> uh, like i remember that we had i i felt it was a great conversation on twitter about the conversation that peter marx had hosted mm-hmm. with all of yes. the uh, yeah, artistic directors along with that yeah so I, it's been such an important uh resource for me because i started in theater in technical theater okay what i do is um 
uh, my first job in town was as the lightboard programmer for Shakespeare Theater Company oh, at okay. Sydney Harmon Hall. All right. Um, which was why I was on Twitter so often, because when you run shows, <laughs> um, there's not a lot to do when you're a go monkey and you're hitting a button every time somebody tells you to hit it. Right. Uh, there's your Part of your brain is pretty free to do other things. Right. Like, as long as when they say go, you push go. Exactly. And that's really surprisingly easy to do with one hand while looking away and not mm-hmm. paying any attention. That's true. I did feel guilty about that, and I sort of you got over it. came full circle and started paying attention to what was happening on yeah, stage, because that's, that's kind of my job. Kind of your job. Or it was my job. Uh, now I'm a freelancer, though. Okay. Um, I had the history of the podcasting idea is actually totally Hannah Hessel Ratner's fault. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, I listen to podcasts. I live in Ellicott City, so when I work in D.C., it's it's an hour in and an hour out, which is perfect to get through two episodes of any podcast a day, Mm -hmm. except for Nerdist, which he can be long. Um, Or You Made It Weird. Oh, yeah. (laughs) One of my favorites. And uh, she invited me to the podcast that they do for Asides. Oh, okay. Shakespeare Theater Company has a... I don't know if... I, I feel like it is... Not an independent entity. I feel like it's completely within Shakespeare Theater Company, but it's audience engagement and dramaturgical support, kind of like a playbill, but with a little bit more depth and a fewer ads. So they they host a podcast that's a roundtable before every show, uh, which is only like six times a year. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of fun with that. It was with Drew Lichtenberg and uh, Marcy, whose last name I forget. Good, um, I'm not the only one. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we were talking about Wallenstein, and we were talking about Coriolanus, which were the reps mm-hmm, that year. Right. Um, and my, I have, my master's degree is in German cultural studies. Jesus Christ. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that's where the triumph of the will and all of that stuff is from. And when we I get to Walter, I did not see that coming. No. I'm running your laughing so hard, but like, what is it? German cultural, German st- cultural studies. Yeah. Okay. What's, My, your, what's your bachelor's in? Right now? Uh, German, and okay. I have a I have a bachelor's in film studies as well. From uh, the bachelor's in German is from Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. The master's degree is from the University of Texas at Austin, and the uh, film studies is from the University of Pittsburgh. And what about the masters? Uh, Texas. Oh, okay. I yeah. Okay. I was I I was very lucky. You're very educated. You're more educated than I am. <laughs> I don't know about and I that. I don't often run into people who are. Well, you've certainly <laughs> taken more schooling than I have. That's fair. That's taken. You have more um, degrees than I do. Is people people make me when I when I say when I start stories with when I went to college people stop me like which time? Aha. Good point. <laughs> very valid. Um. And I was very lucky at the University of Texas because I rode the last wave of any humanities student getting a full ride. Wow. I was part of, they, they really liked my work on, I did, I read, I read Paul DeMann's interpretation of irony as a primary text so that like post-modern, mm-hmm. post-modern understandings of irony, which are based on German romantic senses of irony, but they do things to them first. Right. And I, I was very interested in like, okay, but that's not what Schlegel said. So what is Paul DeMann really doing? And then like yeah. examining so that dialogue. back to the, yeah, to yeah. the source material. Very poorly, I might add. That makes me sound well, really smart. Well, you were smart. an undergrad. I mean, yeah. that's, you're going to do it poorly. Yes. The, but the point is that you did it. Like yes. that's, that's what they're interested in. And that's in. what they found it. It's that's when you're a doctoral student, they're like, you better do that well. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Now, those six years are for nothing. Oh boy, that, and that's why I haven't done it yet. That is exactly the same thing. Yeah, my wife wants me to do it. It's uh, like I keep saying it's six years, and I got to write a book. A and yeah. you don't like me when I'm writing plays, so why would you like me writing a book? <laughs> <laughs> it's so much more work. Oh, yeah. So, and then I stumbled. That's how I stumbled. Uh, so, oh my gosh, that's so, fine. I stumbled onto. It's an early episode. You can yeah, do this sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Um, stumbled onto theater. People need to hear this part. They anyway. do. Yeah. Uh, stumbled onto theater at the Tell end. Tell me of, about your childhood. 
<laughs> I won't go that I shouldn't far. do a German accent because you actually know German. Well, that doesn't you know. work. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. So we were talking about Wallenstein, right. um, actually. Mm-hmm. So, But that's why I was on that's how you got, okay. the podcast that's because why, yeah. my background, they knew that I had gotcha. that background. And that's how you know Danielle. And, and Yes, and I, I knew that. Danielle okay. through because she, uh, that's where she works. Right. Because I just know you on Twitter because Danielle kept retweeting things you tweeted. And I was <laughs> like, well, okay, I'll follow this guy. Yeah. But it, I mean, what... Hopping off one second, what yes. you said about the close knit community is very, very true. Because yeah. I lived in LA for five years almost. From here, I'm not from here, but I started. It was started work here, undergrad, mm-hmm. grad here, went to LA and came back. And the reason I wanted to come back here is because I wanted to do more theater. And I had done a little. I met some people at um, I am a theater company in LA who's uh, most famous for uh, Leslie Headland stuff like Bachelorette. Oh, okay, yeah, she yeah. started with those guys. Yeah, yeah. They did the first production of Bachelorette. Oh, gotcha. And, uh, yeah, and a whole series of her works, The Seven Deadly Plays, which I don't think they finished yet. But um, I have friends like Wes Whitehead and, and Amy Rossoff out there who are good friends of mine. Um, they did a lot of work and, and that got me back interested in doing theater again. And so then when we came back to the East Coast, my wife and I, this is where I wanted to be. And one of the first things I did was I went to a talk back at Theater J Oh. On the state of theater mm, in DC, yeah. with and Heather Haney took me, who's now unfortunately for us in New York. Good yeah. for her, unfortunate for us. Um, and there I met uh, Liz Maestri and Stephen oh, Spotswood, yeah. okay, and yeah. who were like the three of us are like three peas in a pod, as far as I'm concerned. Theoretically speaking, we're not like we don't like hang out and right, have, like right. it's not like three's company, but we're like we all like ideologically line up yeah. very nicely, yeah. and uh, and I like to see them when I can see them. And so I found, but it was really funny as I went to this thing and it was the four of us and Heather keeps saying to people, Patrick's a writer and a, and a filmmaker, but I had nothing to show for it. I'm with Liz and, and Spotswood who have like done stuff. You yeah. know what I mean? And like people are coming up to him and like, and I'm just like, hey, you know, but then, so we're on stage and there's five people upstage and I don't remember who any of them were. It's probably the welders, you know, now. Oh they yeah. At the time, right, yeah. But it's probably those guys. And they're having this discussion. And then late into the discussion, like running in comes Mary Reesing, who did Active Cultures and who produced the reading of my show. <laughs> and she sees me in the audience and she's like pointing at people like, I worked with so-and-so and blah, blah, blah. And Patrick's stuff is weird. You need to read <laughs> Patrick's stuff. It's really weird stuff. So suddenly I went from nobody in the audience to like, oh, he's like an avant-garde playwright. Because a couple of people afterwards were like, what do you do? What kind of stuff? I was like, How weird is it? I was like, it's really not that weird. Just Mary thought it was weird. Uh, um, I guess it's left of center. I don't know what you'd call it. It's uh, certainly odd, but it's not It's not that weird. And yeah, so then and then I met like the guys from, most of the people from The Welders and, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and, and then Kayleen Sennett Jennings, who's actually here at AU. I knew her from oh, before. Okay. Um, and just met all these people like in a flurry, all because Mary Reesing pointed at me and said my name in Theater J, and suddenly I was somebody. Like, because even Spotswood and Liz were like, "Oh, like, okay, Heather wasn't lying. He's like, right, right, he's done stuff." Um, and so, yeah, the community aspect is what yeah. drew me here. Like, it's really great. It's an exciting place to be for theater specifically. Oh yeah, for absolutely. all the arts. I mean, for music and, and and film and all that, but for theater specifically, it's a very exciting town. Yeah, I took the long way to that understanding. My first theater work was in Houston, Texas, uh, where the scene is basically dominated by the alley. I mean, it might be different now, but when I was there, it was the Mm -hmm. alley was the 10,000-pound gorilla, and then everybody else struggled to produce (laughs) work at all. Right. Um, So I was like, okay, uh, I I, I capped out in my lighting job there, so I was like, okay, I'm going to try to be a director. 
I'll move to New York and apply to every internship wow. possible, which was dumb. Right. I do not recommend but that course it was of action. Something. I mean, you did something. Yes, I took a, I took a step took a step forward to take a that. step back. Absolutely. Uh, yes, proactive. That and occasionally, when you take proactive steps, you end up in a wall in front of a wall, and you yeah. can't go any further. Um, and and New York is a town that I discovered. I like if you don't have any money. Yeah. They don't pay you for a very long time, no. so it's it's a it's a real class problem. Um, they have too many people. Yeah, and they have too many people. It's, so it's a it's a it's a I don't know what there's a word there for that, but it's a glut. I mean, there's just too yeah. many people willing to do the same thing you're willing to right. do for less money. Exactly. So and and yeah. they can do that. I mean, that's the whole Absolutely. point. Like, and so basically, they get the cream of the crop, and then they take the best of the best of the best, right? Or the most connected of the most connected, or whatever it is. I mean, whatever it is, yeah. Potato, and, potato, really, and. Yeah, they're but off. But the Venn diagram of me and that is not right. overlapping. There is no people, I mean, most people, it's, union yeah. there. No. Um, so I took a job because I needed one because <laughs> I spent well, we all, all my do. money. Yeah. Um, uh, it, in the Actors Theater of Louisville, which is a great town. And Louisville's a great town. Mm-hmm. And that's a very interesting theater um, doing really interesting stuff, particularly in the Humana Festival. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I worked it, and I'm very excited at some point to I go there. I a friend from L.A. in that, I think it was in the Humana Festival, did a one-woman, Anthony Rapp's one-woman show. Oh, okay, yeah. I, Anthony Rapp is there all the time. Yeah. They're very supportive of his work. She was great. She's out. She left L.A. She'd been born in L.A. Uh, um, uh, Catherine Coombs is her name. Mm. And she was born in, in L.A. and worked at Comedy Sports L.A. And I did a show, an improv show I co-directed with uh, a guy named Eddie Quintana, who if you're in L.A. and don't know who Eddie Quintana is, your life is less than. And um, we did a show. We did an improvised heist show, actually, Ooh. which was interesting. It didn't quite work, but it was an interesting, very interesting experience. Mm-hmm. I'm really glad I did it. But she was in the cast, and she like did this one woman show with with Anthony Rapp. And I remember her being kind of like not understanding how big of a deal right. it was that she because she was like 19 at the time, oh. and like she was like, well, it's in Kentucky, you know, it's not that. And we were all just like. Yeah, this is tremendous and yeah. I, she knows now like right. she absolutely yeah. knows and she's out did she left LA and went to New York and was doing a lot of theater in mm. Chicago and something. she's having a lot of success Great. she's very That's talented awesome. she should have a lot of success um also, at the same time at Comedy Sports LA, before I forget, uh, Jessica Williams, now of The Daily Show, oh. was there at com- was doing nice. show and doing shows with Eddie. Eddie had a she and Sarah Parga had a two woman improv show that I can't remember the name of, um, that was very well received. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, so that was a great. It was, a, I mean, a lot of people coming out of that theater. I yeah. feel really lucky to have been yeah. like there and know and met these people. Like, they're doing <laughs> tremendous work now. Yeah, it's a. Um, that's the that was the goal. So I, yeah. but I, I mean, but you I, were in Louisville. Yeah. yeah, and I looked up after I realized how little I was getting paid in Louisville. Um, you don't need a lot to live in Louisville. You don't. You? That's yeah. true. Right. Um, but I just, I still wanted to be a director. I still, I still write. I mean, I am a playwright. I am not, in the sense that I write plays. Um, that is the definition. Yes. So, and that's. No, I understand ways. what you mean when you say yes. you write plays, but you're not a playwright. I do. Yes. I respect that distinction. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I knew I wanted to be a part of a creative scene, and I took a look around, and I realized that I had aimed too high with New York, but I had relatives uh, who lived in Ellicott City. I mm-hmm. actually live with my family, uh, my extended family, which is awesome. Um, and DC was was right at that level, mm-hmm. and I didn't I I didn't realize how correctly I had chosen until I started getting into the Twitter scene, but it was. It was obvious that there was a a lot of theater being done at all levels. Mm-hmm. You have huge lore theaters, but you also have very active yeah. experimental, very active, and experimental, everything in between. Non equity, nomadic, yeah. places with venues, places without. Yeah, yeah it, absolutely. A very vibrant scene. So it's like, okay, well, 
that's that's what I, I want to get in in the ground floor, or not the ground floor, because obviously many of this has been percolating for so many years. Right. But I want to be. But it does be... feel that way. It feels like we're on. This is something people talked about at Theater J a lot. Is mm. It feels like we're at a moment. Yeah. Where like things are really starting to pop off, and they're going to go someplace interesting. So when you say ground floor, I absolutely know what you mean. Yeah. And it felt that way at Fringe this year, especially because they're mm. moving. Like there was this oh, feeling yeah. of like, this is the cusp. Like we're leaving here and we're going someplace else and that's going to be better than this. And this is pretty great. It, I don't know. It's it, I totally agree with that assessment. Yeah. That, it, that that was the energy. It could all be wrong. We could all be completely misreading the landscape. But it doesn't, I, it felt, everybody sort of felt like we're, like we're on our way up. Everything's on the rise. Yeah. And, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. And we all felt that way. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and I think... And it, then it, they give out awards and everybody gets angry. I, but that's like, fun, you know. Well, I... <laughs> my dream is actually to have somebody from Theater Washington on the podcast. Okay. So that I, ideally I, we could have that discussion. Because my personal feeling about those awards is that they well, are... which awards are you talking about? The Helen Hayes Awards. The Helen Hayes Awards. I'm talking about the Cap Fringe Awards. Oh, the Cap Fringe Awards. Uh, the same result. It is. Awards have... I, I like the Helen Hayes Awards, I will say. <laughs> but I am not involved in them in any way. Right. So that's a thing. Yeah, I, I mean, I, that was a huge kerfuffle. Well, I remember this year. It was a mess. And yeah. then the talk back and all that, I'm following that on Twitter was fascinating. Yes, exactly. Absolutely fascinating. Um, they probably should get rid of the non-resident awards. That's the only thing I'm going to say. That feels like cheating. It does. I understand why they do it. I understand yes. why they started it, right. especially. But yeah, yeah you shut it down. Yeah. It's no big deal. Yeah. Awards are such a funny, because we need them. It's that's strange. the thing that gets yeah, lost. We do actually not, need awards. Yeah. We like people say we don't need it. You do need it. The the there was a correlation between because I was in LA for this when when web series became something that everybody knew what they were. There was a correlation between that moment and when the Streamy Awards started. Oh yeah. Awards give an industry a direction, a definition, and validation. And not it's that true. theater needs any of that. Theater <laughs> as a concept has that already. Yeah. But your regional theater needs the thing. Yeah. It needs something to be like, and it won a Helen Hayes award. Well, what's that? Well, that's the DC. And they've been going on for over many years. And it's named after Helen Hayes, who a lot of people have heard of, especially in, in, well, in the industry. Anyway. Certainly. Yeah. Um, triple crown acting winner, Helen Hayes. <laughs> uh, so it, it's very important that you, these the awards need to exist. What gets lost is the perspective of what an award actually means. Right, exactly. Which is nothing. Yeah, nothing. Like, it actually means nothing. But people get real... Because when they gave out the awards at the tent, mm. a lot of people were upset that they didn't win. Like, in general. Just in the room. But only three shows won... There's only three awards. Oh. It was like best play, best musical, and like best... Um, no, like uh, traveling production oh, or okay. something. Yeah. Maybe there's a fourth, and then like I think that they give like two special mentions to people, and those are very nice. It kind of all should be special mentions, in my opinion. But mm-hmm. when you start to categorize stuff, people start to get defensive. Yeah, and like somebody said to me, it was like, "Well, your show didn't win best comedy. Are you upset?" And I said, "Well, it's not. It's a comedy. We put it in that classification because we had to choose, and at the time, it was more a comedy than a drama. But now." If people ask me if it's a comedy or drama, I will say it's a drama. Also because, I say that not only because it's more dramatic than it was when we started rehearsals, mm. but because I feel like when people hear, one problem we did have was that it's a comedy called Giant Box of Porn at the Capitol Fringe. People, there were a representative sample who came expecting to see like live fucking on right, stage or something right. like that. And they didn't get that. And there was some grumbling about <laughs> that from some people um, who didn't see what they expected to see. Uh, and that's totally fair. I don't. I don't object to anyone's analysis. 
uh, of that. We we screwed with your expectations a little bit and did it knowingly. I'm not, you know, we chose. I chose the title because it was a very provocative title. Yeah. But now I would market it as a drama. Yeah. Because you would at least go, oh, it's a drama and it's called Giant Box of Porn. Oh, then it's probably a funny drama. You'd probably know that there's some tongue in cheek or some humor. Right. Whereas if you see a comedy called Giant Box of Porn, you expect something a little different mm-hmm. out of it. So it wasn't a comedy. So it wouldn't win a Best Comedy Award because it wasn't the funniest thing going, mm-hmm. if that's your criteria. And it wouldn't win Best Drama of anything either because it's not the most dramatic thing. Nobody dies. You know, there's no <laughs> searing in it. There's not a lot of searing in the show. <laughs> So, because I don't like genres, I tend to write things yeah. that span genres, and that's the stuff that gets lost in the middle when it comes to awards. And I'm Absolutely, fine yeah. with that. Like, yeah. I'm not, you know, I'm I'm not staying up at night going, "How do I win an award?" Um, at least not anymore. But uh, <laughs> the not lately. Um, so yeah, you just can't get hung up on yeah. winning the award, and that's so easy for me to say. I also know that it's so easy for me to say to you, just don't get hung up on it. I had a friend who was like going to get in a fight with somebody the other I was at somebody's wake and they were like going to get in a fight with somebody else. I was like, don't just ignore him. Just ignore him. He wants your attention. He's like, God, it's so easy for you to say that. I'm just <laughs> yeah. like terrified. I'm like, oh, true, but I'm still right. Don't, yeah. don't get in a fight at a wake. Like it's just it's not something we do that as people. Yeah. That's seems... so, uh, that was, that was bad. That would be bad. Yeah. Um, and so I recognize it's easier for me to say here and say, just don't care because we do care. We care about recognition. We care about... And if I'd actually been nominated for Helen Hayes Award and not won, I probably would have a very different opinion. I'll recognize sure. that right away. Yeah. But you can't... It, I, I felt so lucky that the show got read and people yeah. enjoyed it. And I felt so lucky that we then got produced. And we got produced at Cap Fringe at the warehouse, which is a great venue. I could mm, tell people mm-hmm. where it was and they knew. Right. It was right down the street from the tent. It's a very central location. Yeah. I felt so lucky that we sold, were selling. Forget sold out every show. We were selling. Um, and then so lucky that the people who came to see it liked, liked it. it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like all those things are unfathomable. So screw the award. Who cares? Right. Like, it's amazing we're this far. Forget You have to be comfortable with what you've got. Because you have to, when you sit down to write, as I'm sure you know, have to be okay with the fact that nobody's going to read this. My brother started a blog when he was in college. Mm. He's like, do you think I should start a blog? He said that to me. And I was like, sure. Just know that no one's going to read it. Yeah, I'll read it because I'm your brother. But probably no one's going to read this. And you have to be okay with that. You have to be okay with yeah. making it just for you. That has to be enough because that's all that's guaranteed. Yeah. Past that. Who cares? I've done the DC 48-hour film project oh, five that or six times. Oh, that sounds so cool. I have so much fun with it. I love doing it. We've we've won a couple of awards. We've never won the big award. Does that irk me a little bit? Yes. But I'm proud of every single movie I made. Yeah. And there's so many variables that go into winning an award. Like, I made the best movie I ever made two years ago, and so did a friend of mine, and he won. Because mm. his best movie was better than my best movie <laughs> right. so far. It just was. Like, yeah, it was a better movie. It is, yeah. It's the way it works. And there's different judges. There's so many criteria you can't control. The only thing you can control is your product. So just be cool. <laughs> right. It sounds so easy as I sit here and say, just be cool. But you have to. Yeah. <laughs> just be cool. And everybody will be better anyway. But then when you have the people on for, from Washington Theater, they can uh, argue their side of the equation. I don't know what yeah, they say. I, it would be interested to hear that. That's though. why I, I feel like they get defensive very quickly because there are so much Well, they feel like they're being attacked. Yeah, I mean, exactly. They, and they are a lot And they of the are time. being attacked yeah. be, uh, for things that aren't necessarily at all within their control. Right. 
because well there's um, nothing more irrational than a large group of creative people no, that's true i mean a large group of creative people will start yelling things that don't make any, any sense, sense and just get wrapped up in the passion of themselves and yeah. they start saying like and everything should be free all the time <laughs> and we should be paid a lot of money for the free thing we're making and you go wait hang on those two ideas don't make any sense together <laughs> yeah. but everybody's cheering so yeah. you know <laughs> feels good to say this feels right really now. good to say it out loud yeah. We like I, that. yeah my my perspective on the awards and things are a little different as well because mm-hmm. I come from production. Sure. Um, I, I mean, you know. I, Were you, I, is there a more objective criteria, you think, on that side? Or? I, it's um, actually, I don't think it's more objective. I think it's angrier. Ooh, fun. Um, because I don't care about your awards because there aren't awards for me. You don't oh, care about what, what I do, about. so why I should see. I care so about you your silly like awards? You were saying, I see. So feeling ignored oh, yeah. in general, which you would then feel anyway, yes. because you are. I mean, the all the time. Stuff. Well, you have to be. It's part of the job. It is part of the job. Nobody and, notice if you do your job exactly right every night. No one should notice. Right. Yeah. That is. That's and, the definition of crew, and yes. that's a terrible, terrible thing. But it's true. It's absolutely true. No one should notice the the stage crew or even the director really the director gets a lot of credit i think for things that aren't the director i mean they're their decision ultimately probably say yes or no right but they didn't do it it's the crew or the lighting or the set my um, design my great uncle um his name is jerry teachman shout out cool um he has some really interesting stories i don't remember how it all started but he is somehow friends I don't think it was with Ingmar Bergman. Oh, wow. But <laughs> he is friends with Liv Ullman. He was in the room, like, when she was deciding to do A Streetcar Named Desire with Kate Blanchett in Australia. Oh, wow. They were in the room as they were reading. Well, that's pretty... With Liv and whatever. Okay. So they get a lot of very fun stories about Ingmar Bergman and, like, who's... Yeah. Uh, like, Talk about a director whose work is analyzed and overanalyzed oh, yeah. and who gets all kinds of credit for things that don't necessarily have anything to do with creative control at all. No, but he's really good. He is really good, <laughs> so, which is why it continues to happen. But he has this great story about... there, I, And I wish I could remember which movie this was. But there's there's a lamp that lights a character in a, in a room in a particular scene. Um, that someone found so effective and so important to the film that they wrote a dissertation mm-hmm. on the meaning of this lamp and, and, and its centrality and the illumination and all of this. And as Liv tells the story, or whoever, ha- however the story got relayed to my Uncle Jerry, mm-hmm. who always says, if you tell a story three times, you can say that it happened to you. As long as you never tell it to the person the who told person it to you I was originally, say, yeah. um, which is fantastic. He is a wonderful storyteller. Um, so I'm butchering this as well. But the end result was Ingmar's like, I, I need more light. The original scene as he created as a production mm-hmm. designer, put it together, um, didn't include the lamp. And they, the camera just needed more light. Mm-hmm. So they got a lamp from the other room and plugged it in and turned it on. I get in oh, two things to say to that. Um, one of them is the short one is we just finished uh, in my visual literacy class today we did a, our section on photography and I closed just because we ran out of time with uh, Abbey Road album cover okay, yeah, Abbey Road. Yeah. and I had them like we were out of time and I needed to close on something and I had like nine other photographs to show them but we were out of time so I thought okay we'll close on this one I said we're going to do a close reading of this photograph and they all kind of went Ugh. and I said what do you know like we, I really drug stuff out of them as much as I could and then I started talking about the Paul is Dead 
phenomenon. Oh, yeah. The mm-hmm. album cover. Yeah. And very briefly, just Google it for the image if you don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah. But I can't imagine you don't. <laughs> but if you Google image it and you look at it, one of the the backup for the Paul is dead thing is that Paul's eyes are closed. He's out of step and he's barefoot. John's dressed in all white. He's the preacher. Ringo's dressed in all black. He's the mourner. Paul's the corpse. And George is dressed in jeans, jean shirt and jeans. And he's the grave digger. And also there's a license plate in the background that says 28 if, which means Paul McCartney was still alive. He'd be 28 years old, which actually isn't true. He would have been 27. And he was 27 because he's still alive today. <laughs> but I um, can't believe I just used the past tense there. <laughs> but I did this all for them. And we talked about how like nothing I've said is incorrect. Everything oh, yeah. I just presented yeah. to you is factual. But none of it's true. Like the, the way I put all those factual things together is incorrect. And I talked about how you can misinterpret something very easily. Yeah. With all the available facts, and then we talked about conspiracy theories for five minutes, and then Stanley class Fisher. was over. But the um, but the thing of that, so I got in a big <laughs> argument with somebody in college once about the end of the Graduate, yeah, the shot at the end of the Graduate, yeah, where uh, Dustin Hoffman and Catherine Ross like are happy, 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 and then they look depressed. Do you know how that shot came about? I don't. So they shot it and shot it, and it was supposed to end with them happy on the on the bus, and Mike Nichols said, I don't know if he said cut. And the guy didn't cut, or if they said like something like "that's good," and he told the guy to keep it rolling. But that what you see is them just relaxing. Interesting, so interesting. And he left it in, and my friend was arguing that that means it's not a great shot because mm. Nichols didn't, or that Nichols doesn't shouldn't get any credit because he didn't tell them to do that. And I said nobody left it in. No, the the choice in the editing room validates it. And to me, the lamp is the same thing. Yeah, he didn't intend for the lamp to be there. Steven Spielberg didn't intend Jaws not to show up till three quarters (laughs) of the way through the movie, but the shark didn't work, so it didn't. It's taking the adversity, yeah, and solving it in a creative way. And even if sometimes that means I don't know what to do here, (laughs) I'm giving you the job. That is still. Yeah, absolutely. it's still the director's choice. It's still their movie. They still made that decision. So I don't quite, I don't, wouldn't crap on Bergman for that. No, but I do totally see your point yeah. that it's, it. You don't want that to be the reason. You want the reason to be like this is all on purpose. Yeah, and like ninety nine percent of the time, it it's just what happened and we made the best of it. The, there's a, a Kurosawa story where he was being interviewed about a movie. It might have been Rand, but there's a shot in one of his movies where it's like an army charging down a hill and it's a static shot. And then it's a move for however many minutes. And the interviewer asked, why didn't you pan so we could see the rest of the massive army? And he said, because if I panned left, you would have seen the factory. And if I panned right, you would have seen the houses. <laughs> Sometimes it's just that simple. It, well, and it's using, it's yeah. using a bad, yes. taking the best of a bad situation. And you go, oh. And the other thing I always tell my students, at the end, of, I wait till the end of the semester to tell them this, is that never admit you made a mistake oh, yeah. in an artistic endeavor. Because it's better to be wrong artistically than just stupid. Yeah, absolutely. Where you stand up and go, oh, well, like when, uh, and I, t- I did this in film school all the time where a teacher would catch me in a mistake. And why did you, like, you, you underexpose that. And I'd be like, oh, well, I wanted to show that he was kind of like dark and like, I just went too far. And he goes, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. All right, fine. Just yeah. next time, don't do that. Whereas the truth was I underexposed, I made a mistake. Right. But I can claim I didn't, and you can't prove I you can't prove. Right. You just have to have a reason, and it has to be based on the facts. That's right. the other thing. You, yeah. have, you can't just make it up. Well, I mean, that's modern art. Modern conceptual art is the narrative about the work mm-hmm. and the effort in the work more well, than the it presentation. Is. Right. The yeah. The presentation exactly. yeah. is the art to me. I yeah. mean, it's things like a couple of years ago when they had the uh, the guy did the thing of like the dead animals and the formaldehyde. Mm-hmm. Um, and I saw it and I found it stunning, and several people thought it was stupid. <laughs> That's the word you always hear. Absolutely. Um, 
But the presentation was the thing that was part of the bit. Yeah. Why is this in a museum? Like that's it. And people hate that. They hate <laughs> it when it gets that meta. They're just like, yeah, I just yeah. want to look at something pretty and go yeah. home. It's yeah. like, well, that's why on the first floor there are sculptures. And right. Paintings. That's yeah, exactly. why all that stuff's on the first floor because you don't have to work for it <laughs> intellectually or physically. It's right on the first floor. Um, and in this town, it's free. You just walk in and it's on the first floor. Yeah. And the stuff you have to work for is up higher because if you climbed to it, you're going to need to work for it. Um, and it doesn't make it any less. All that needs to be taken into account because, as I said earlier, we absorb media faster. We're smarter. Yeah. We need to be challenged more. I showed my students Guernica, Picasso's oh, painting. Yeah. They hated it. They all hated <laughs> it so much. A bunch of freshmen hating on oh, Guernica. There it is. And they hated it because they because there was a groan, audible groan when I brought it up on the screen. And then somebody went, ugh, modern art. Like that. <laughs> And it's a fun place to start from because yeah. I can swing them around and they can also go, but it's dark and it's not fun. And I was like, it's not supposed to be fun. Your assumptions are wrong. This mm. is about mm-hmm. a disaster. It's supposed to make you feel uncomfortable. We also looked at Sunday Afternoon on the Island of Grand Jatte and they love that painting because it's fun. Mm-hmm. And it's also an excellent painting. I mean, it don't is, get me yeah. wrong. But it, it's, you know, it's an easier painting to like. Picasso yes. is going to challenge the crap out of you yeah. and you need to rise the challenge or don't. But he's valid. You can't artistic. You can't dismiss him. Just don't dismiss. That's the big thing. That don't is, dismiss. That don't is just say thing. it's dumb and walk away. Try. And if it doesn't work, you can say I don't like it, but don't say it's dumb. That That's my opinion. is a great place to end. End? I, have taken I up, haven't even started I yet. I know. I haven't even talked about the room. We totally have Let's to talk, talk about, about the room. room. I got time. Do you have time? Uh, Do our viewers have time? We are at These are listeners. Hour. Uh-huh. We can I go have, on to part. You want to stop and we can do a part two? Yeah, yeah, let's, let's do, do that, that because I really want to talk about the room. Let's talk about because the room. you have this great concept. I I'm do. gonna we'll throw in this at edit point here. All right, that's good. 